0: Is it what you thought it was going to be, and are you unimpressed? It it is what I thought it was going to be in terms of focusing on the payments that were made, the falsification of the records, and really tied to the payment that was made to Stormy Daniels. Uh, In terms of a case that's being brought against a former president, it's a little underwhelming. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to Episode 70 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right. and We try to carve out some time for a less shrill, less extreme and generally less angry conversation. So we finally have some understanding of when the first Trump case will begin. And it's March 25th. That is barely a month away from today. And the case is going to be the people versus the state of New York versus Donald J. Trump. It is what some people call the hush money case. Um, Some people consider it a case of trying to cover up something or some people consider it a case of trying to cover up something else. Is it an election corruption case or is it a case of business misdealings? The basic fact of the case are this that Donald Trump is charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business uh, records in the first degree. Um, And this all came down from 130,000. I guess some people get sensitive about this, but it was, it was a hush money payment that was made by Donald Trump's then lawyer, this guy, Michael Cohen, to Stormy Daniels. And I think one other person was involved in this as well. And the purpose of the payment Was to suppress her story that it would not come out before the 2016 election. That's how far back this goes, and um, so we did. He 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 wanted it covered up so it wouldn't damage his campaign any further. If you remember, this was after the famous uh, Access Hollywood case had come out. So, how do you get 34 counts um, with that one act? Well. It's 11 for writing the reimbursement checks to this guy Cohen. It is 11 for the invoice voices and it's 12 for the entries in the business ledgers of the Trump organization for legal fees. Now, I had originally thought that a good idea would have bring on a lawyer to talk about this as we've done for some other cases, but I'm kind of able to read this stuff and it's not terribly complicated either what the uh, what Bragg, who's the Manhattan District Attorney, or what Trump is saying about these various cases. It's not really complicated legal stuff. I mean, these are Class E felonies in New York state law. That's the lowest in New York state law. The max is four years per count. And before we get to the QA and what Trump and his supporters might argue about the case, first is this notion of is this really a felony? Is um is this 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 idea of falsifying business records because there is a misdemeanor crime in New York State of falsifying business records, but it becomes a felony if you are doing it to cover up a second crime, any second crime. So, um, a good first question about this is what is the second crime that Bragg is alleging? When Bragg presented the case to the grand jury, and just to make it clear, he doesn't have to say exactly what it is that he's going to argue, but he does have to give kind of the outlines of it. And when he presented the case to the grand jury, criminal cases like this they get presented to a grand jury as a grand jury, a citizens of the of the of Manhattan County of New York County, present, um handed up this indictment. Bragg made basically three. Potential arguments for what the crime is that the cover up was about. One, he said that Trump was breaking federal campaign finance laws around how you report things. If indeed this Stormy Daniels payment and to this other woman McDougal, if they were being made for the purpose of advancing his campaign, then you've got to write that down as an expenditure. And there's all kinds of laws in the in the Federal Election Commission. That requires that. The second possible crime that they could be saying was being covered up was the state campaign finance reporting laws, which are very similar. If you're doing something to further your campaign, if you're hiring someone, if you're expending something, or if you're paying money to someone not to say something, theoretically, that's supposed to be reported on their state campaign finance. That wasn't happened. So that's the second potential law that was being broken. Again, it's a misdemeanor when you misreport something, a business you falsify a document for business purposes, but it becomes a felony if you're doing it for the purpose of concealing a second crime. And the third thing, and this is kind of like if the first two don't work out, I can see Bragg trying to use this one, is that there is a general state law that makes it illegal for anyone to conspire to promote, quote, the election of any person to a public office by unlawful means. It's kind of like, you can't do anything illegal, and if you do, that becomes the foundational thing that was being covered up. So there is actually, I say there's three, but there's kind of a fourth one too. He could say, well, this is some form of tax fraud that was being covered up. I'm not really sure I see that part because they did pay, it doesn't, no one's alleged that they paid less taxes on this, but maybe by putting it down as legal fees, which is what they did. Rather than put it down as something else, there's a second crime. So anyway, does anyone really get charged with this in New York State? Is this as an, is this kind of an extraordinary out there kind of case? Well, actually, people do get charged with this. Um, under Bragg, who hasn't been in office that long, it's happened already 120 times. 120 different people have been charged with filing a false business document, Um and are any of them like the Donald Trump case? Well, as with so many things with Donald Trump, nothing is exactly like the Donald Trump case. I mean, there haven't been any cases of presidential candidates paying off adult film stars for the purpose of them not talking before an election against Hillary Clinton in 2016. No. Um but but there is a there is like for example there was a lawyer, the New York Times did this whole story about like, what are some other cases this has come up on? There was a lawyer who stole $1.2 million from his firm and covered it up with false business statements. In that case, the $1.2 million fraud was the base thing that allowed it to be charged. An insurance broker took 350000 of his client's money and covered it up with false business statements. The thing that makes the Trump case different is that in all of the other cases that Bragg has charged, he has charged both crimes, the underlying one and the false, um, the falsifying documents one. In this case, he is saying, look, there is a second crime that's being covered up, but I'm not charging that one. I'm just charging this one. And that's where, um, where it's become kind of interesting and a little bit weird. Now, The law makes it clear you can do this. There was a precedent from 40 years ago that made it clear you can do this. You don't have to say what the underlying crime is. You do have to explain to the jury, and the jury has to buy that there was a second crime, but you don't have to charge it. Um, And the judge, who just the other day set this March 25th trial date, he reiterated the idea that you don't need to tell me or the defense at this moment what exactly the underlying crime is. You can go ahead and argue any of those three. But again, you've got to um, persuade the jury of that at the end of the day. So there is some mystery to all of this. Bragg's lawyers, like I said, haven't told us what the underlying crime will be. um, But we hear a lot of Donald Trump's kind of twin arguments on this very point. He says, one, you can't um, attach the state cover up statute to an alleged federal crime, meaning you didn't you did something wrong from your federal taxes, especially uh, or your federal campaign filings, especially since that hasn't been charged. And the second point that they're kind of making, it's a legal one, is also is like the federal campaign laws are federal. They preempt the state laws. And if the federal government hasn't charged me with this crime, then effectively it doesn't count as one for the purpose of this false filing. So until the the trial starts, um, it's pretty clear where the 34 misdemeanors were, but we'll have to see how they become felonies. And that part of it, I'm sure, is going to be the subject uh, of a lot of argument. Now, beyond this kind of technical point, there is this other question that you're going to hear raised a bunch. You know, this guy Bragg, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, elected district attorney of New York County. He campaigned on on going after Donald Trump. And about, you know, I looked into this a little, and I know that clearly that was the case with Letitia James. As a matter of fact, on my Saturday show just this weekend, I played a whole montage of different things that Letitia James said before she got elected, saying, I'm going to go after this guy, Trump. I'm going to get up every morning, sue him, and go to bed, and that kind of thing. But in the case of Bragg, and I know this a little bit from personal experience because I live in Manhattan, so I saw a lot of the campaign up close. But also, I looked at the record, and Bragg never actually did campaign on this issue. Now, it came up in a lot of candidate forums, but I asked one of his opponents You know, what did Bragg say when Donald Trump's prosecution would come up? Now, remember, Cy Vance, the previous district attorney, had not prosecuted Donald Trump. And so it came up a lot. Like, are you going to be different? About the best I can come up with is the following quote from Bragg. Quote, I have investigated Trump and his children and held them accountable for the misconduct with the Trump Foundation. This is a previous case. Mr. Bragg said, I know how to follow the facts and hold people in power accountable. That's the hottest of the hot takes that I heard or read from Bragg. And I looked far. Now, maybe I'll I'll be proven wrong, but I think it's fairly careful. And the reason he was being careful, one, I think it's good policy because it's very, very hard if you are going to prosecute him. He must have had this in mind. If you're going to prosecute him, you really do hold yourself open to real criticism if you do go after the guy in advance or say, I'm going to go after him in advance. But he also had to be careful because Cy Vance, his predecessor, had not prosecuted Trump. And I think he wanted to be careful not to get into this tit for tat, well, are you better than Vance or worse than Vance? Or what did Vance do that you would do, et cetera, et cetera? So you're going to hear it a lot that Bragg is out to get me or out to get my my favorite candidate. I don't really think that holds a heck of a lot of water. Another line of defense you're going to hear from Donald Trump is that paying for Stormy Daniels isn't a campaign expense. It's just paying to stop embarrassing information that would come out like an NDA. I didn't want my wife to hear about it. I didn't want my neighbors to hear about it. I was embarrassed by it. You know, the, the, the prototype for this was the John Edwards case. John Edwards, former candidate for president, former North Carolina senator, He I think he 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 had a child out of wedlock, paid expenses for this woman to keep her quiet and also to take care of her expenses around the pregnancy. And he was prosecuted for this under federal campaign finance laws. And he won. It was one of the rare prosecutions of this sort. He made the argument that I just I just expounded on. It wasn't really campaign related. I was just, you know, I didn't want anyone to find out. And I think that you can see Donald Trump trying to make that argument in trial, but he'll probably go a little further and say it never happened. She made it up or something like that. And therefore, um, I just didn't want anyone saying dumb things about me the last final weeks of the campaign. So you might hear them making that argument as well, that it's just not a campaign expense as much as you may want to make it one. Now, that doesn't get them out from under the tax thing. Um, and it doesn't get them under whether it's a motivation, it, whether that only gets them from out from under the reporting requirement. Um, it probably doesn't help them with that catch all phrase about helping someone get elected. But he could, again, he can make the argument it wasn't about that. A big piece of evidence that you're going to hear um, about is uh, an audio recording of the arrangements being made to pay off the non-Stormy Daniels person, this Karen McDougal. It's a tape made by Michael Cohen um, that is seriously open to interpretation. It's not clear, maybe I'll insert it here in the podcast so you can hear a little bit. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David. You know, so yeah. that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I've spoken, to, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up with funding. Yes. And it's all the yeah, stuff. All the stuff. Because, you know, you never know where that company, you no, never you know you where he's going to be. It, Correct. So I'm, I'm all over that. And I spoke to Alan about it when it comes time for the financing, which will be... Yes. Awesome. What we'll finance? have to pay you, so I'll pay the kid. No, 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 I got, no, no, no. A lot of it is like mob-style code being spoken and people are talking over each other. So who is gonna be left to interpret? It'd definitely be part of the trial. So who is gonna be left to interpret that audio? Well, one of America's most slippery former lawyers, this guy, Michael Cohen. He's the guy who went to prison for lying. He's a guy who spent a career abetting Donald Trump in lying. He's not a very sympathetic character to a jury, I would imagine. And his credibility recently took another hook, uh, another hit rather, when he was applying to have the conditions of his supervision, of his parole shortened. I think he was sentenced to three years. He wanted to have it shortened. It's a difficult thing to do. Anyway, he made filings with the court that included all of these precedents to get the kind of relief that he wanted. There was only one problem that he relied upon ChatGPT to come up with these precedents. They didn't exist. He told the lawyer to include them in the filings. So in, you don't have to look far for Trump's lawyers to say, you cannot rely on anything that get this guy says. So who knows if the jury will believe him. I assume they're gonna to have to bring in a lot of corroborating evidence for whatever this guy, Michael Cohen said. He was He's gonna testify. All of this happened. I was asked for the money. Uh, I mean, I explained to Trump, we were going to have to open a fresh account for it. You were going to reimburse me, all these different kinds of things. So we don't know whether a jury will believe him or not. Now, about the jury, um, you can also plan to hear a lot from Trump about how impossible it is for him to get a fair trial in New York. Um, Some facts about that. Trump is indeed very unpopular with voters in Manhattan, 86.7%. That's the margin that Trump, forgive me, that Biden carried in 2020. Um, but if you take those same percentages, that means only 10 in 12 of the jurors uh, would have voted for Biden. Um, and also, that's well, something else to keep in mind, nearly 600,000 adults in Manhattan didn't vote at all. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, this is where the crime happened. The crime happened in Manhattan. That's where the trial happens. You have a trial someplace that has a, 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 a metri- uh, what's the word for it? A, a matrix um, with the crime that's been committed. And it's a New York um, case. And it seems pretty clear that it's going to be tried here, whether Trump likes it or not. Um, but, you know, who's to judge whether they'll be? Uh, buy it. Well, I'll tell you who's to judge. This guy called Juan Merchán, Merchan, M-E-R-C-H-A-N. He is someone that has always already been labeled a Trump-hating judge. He was on the bench for the tax fraud case against the Trump company that they were paying employees perks and benefits um, uh, to employees and not reporting them appropriately as, as salaries. And they were fined one point six. Uh, million dollars. Um, This judge was born in Bogota, Colombia, came here at age six, I read. He grew up in Queens. Uh, You can imagine um, that the MAGA crazies out there are going to love him as in they're going to threaten his life. I mean, that's pretty much what happens in these types of cases. Can you imagine someone born in Bogota, Colombia, not being subjected to the kind of haranguing that goes on online as anything that, uh, as far as anything that goes uh, for Trump. And so Trump will be yelling from the top of his lungs, this is election interference, this is election interference. You know, look, it, if you don't want to have things, you know, everyone has things that are going on during trials. You happen to be running for office, I would say to Donald Trump. It is probably going to be the case that even though it's a state case, you can't have this case while well, he or president of the United States I think that's basically policy of the Justice Department, and I'm sure the New York New York State and any court would uphold that. So this is really the time you can do it. Um, so I say this is going to be the first case, March 20, what did I say, 25th? March 25th is when it's going to get underway. They're already having conversations about choosing a jury. But with one important caveat, it could be that the Supreme Court takes this um, immunity case and quickly dispenses with it. like this week and says, no, there was there's no immunity. You got to go have a trial. Or you know, you can only take this, you can anyway, the, something that leads Judge Chutkin in the January 6th case to suddenly get back on track. And she says, I want to do this in pick a date, May or June or July. And then it might be back to the to Brag or this judge saying, you're right. You guys have to go prepare for that. That one's more important. So we will again take the back seat. That's why, by the way, this Bragg case was dormant for so long. They were kind of waiting to see which spot that they would go ahead um, and move in. So we say it's going to be the first case. It probably is the first case. Now, will Donald Trump go to prison over this? Is it the strongest possible case? Is it the crispest one? Is it the one that has the greatest stakes? I'll leave it for you to decide. I don't think so. Um, not the, it's probably the one that is viewed with most skepticism since it's kind of a weird one. You know, you, you know, the hush fund, you know, you filed the hush fund payment, the wrong place doesn't seem like much. Does it hurt him because it brings back up the idea that he's paying off uh, adult film performers? I don't know. I kind of think that's already in the firmament of what people already expect. Uh, so I don't know what the net net effect will be. I think you'll probably be able to show that a lot of people get charged for this, a lot of people you know get penalized and, and are held accountable that Donald Trump should also. So that is the first case out of the box. That's the one we think we're going to hear the, the 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 hear from first. And as it relates to that, let's let's see. I'll try to keep you posted if anything changes. And with that, let's uh, take a quick break and then I'll be back with Ask Anthony anything so welcome back to ask anthony anything and today we're gonna uh uh, talk back to one of the people that i actually share the red apple podcast network microphones and the radio station microphones at 77 wabc it's a guy named andrew giuliani you probably recognize his last name if you're a new yorker or a fan of the station you recognize his full name he's got a show on on sunday He also fills in a lot with uh, Curtis. He's um, he fills in for his dad frequently. And he also has a podcast, The Andrew Giuliani Show. And I would encourage you to look it up and subscribe. So um, this week he did a little catch all show and I could not keep up with all the mistakes that he was making. But one of the things he said, um, he, he talked about and he said was about this idea that Joe Biden um, has undercut our energy independence. Take a listen. Biden ended up shutting down the Keystone Pipeline, went from America being energy independent for the first time in decades under President Trump to now being energy reliant. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we're not relying on, let's say, the best actors here. We're relying on the Irans of the world. You're relying on the Russia's. You're relying on the Saudis for this. So, What Biden did in all of his brilliance, and really, let's be honest, it's not just Joe Biden specifically, it's his administration who's calling the shots on this, and it's the the greenie zealots here that are calling the shots. Instead of actually making America self-reliant and a net exporter of energy, we immediately ended up making America reliant on the Saudi Arabias, the Russias, the Irans of the world. So- Let me try to tease out a couple of things here about this whole idea of energy independence. First of all, as a matter of fact, we are producing and exporting more energy today under Joe Biden than we ever did under Donald Trump. That's a fact. But this whole idea of energy independence, Donald Trump made us energy independent and now we're not, is a little bit, scratch that, it's a lot of um, deceptive. And for the following reasons, like there's really two ways that you can look at this idea of energy independence. On one hand, you can just add up all of the energy we export, all the energy that we import, and then if you're in a net surplus, you say we're energy independent. But but I want to just make it very clear that we are always importing energy because the stuff that we produce, we don't consume all of. And on the other hand, we very often, we as a country, Import things that um, are much more attractive to our economy. And an example of this is that is that we import a lot of crude oil, that then our refineries, which are built uh, to process this heavy, what's called sour crude oil. But oil that is produced from the shale oil boom and from hydrofracking and things like that are primarily lighter and sweeter, as they say. Um, we export much more of that. Um, We often also frequently import crude oil from countries like Saudi Arabia, and I'll get to that part of his comment in a minute. Um, And then we process it and export it back out again because that's a profitable business of processing that that oil. So in, in that scenario, we're not really importing the oil because we need it, but rather because it's financially lucrative for companies to be doing it. So this whole notion of energy independence is widely confused by people, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. And in the category of intentionally, it is true that uh, under Donald Trump, uh, you know, this whole idea that he made us energy independent, but it was starting in like two thousand five when the shale, when we, when hydro, um, hydrofracking and other things started kicking in and it was actually under barack obama that we became a net exporter of energy because of it it was a it was a boom that happened because largely of um of technology um you know there had been a steady increase since 2005 um of this shale energy that had and by 2012, 2012 when barack obama was in office that um that we had uh, started to export more than we brought in because of this discovery of this new technology and access to all of So by the time that Donald Trump took office in 2017, energy imports had already fallen 75% since the 2005 level. So the idea that Joe Biden turned off our energy and became energy dependent is just not true. But I do want to talk about this other idea of like, we then have to deal with our enemies and we have to deal with unsavory people. When we are importing crude oil, which from places like Saudi Arabia, first of all, I think the technical term is chutzpah for anyone defending Donald Trump to even raise the subject of Saudi Arabia, considering how Donald Trump has completely um, bent over for Saudi Arabia, seems more concerned about getting their money for their live golf courses. His son-in-law took $2.5 billion. They did nothing to hold the Saudis accountable for Khashoggi, did nothing to help the 9-11 victims' families get access to the information about what really happened on 9-11. So to even raise the Saudis is the height of chutzpah. But I will say this, if you are really concerned about the influence of foreign entities because they have a lot of oil, then that's the argument for reducing our consumption of oil. Oil. And I don't see anything in the Donald Trump playbook or anything, and especially It says, listen, let's try to reduce the consumption of oil so that we are less beholden to Venezuela, less beholden to Iran and Iraq, and we're doing less. If we reduce demand in the United States, it will drive down demand for the world. Driving down demand means driving down prices. Driving down prices means driving down profits. Driving down profits means hurting Iran, hurting Saudi Arabia and the like. And part of being Part of being, you know, the the he derisively talks about wacko green people or whatever it is. I want to tell you, fighting global warming and fighting consumption of gas of, of fossil fuels is good foreign policy. It's good economic policy and it's good defense policy. Um and one final thing, this whole idea you stopped that Biden stopped the XL pipeline. The pipeline does not add a single gallon, a single ounce of energy. It's just how it moves around. And the problem with the pipeline has been technical problems with it, but also it runs through private land. And and dozens and dozens and dozens of lawsuits have been around. States have their own permitting process. It was a disaster from a business perspective. And you can blame Joe Biden, but the XL pipeline is not adding to our our exports or to our imports. So that's the response to to my friend, Andrew Giuliani. I don't think you should not listen to him, but when you do listen to him, um, you should know that I did this correction. I probably could have done a bunch of others, um, but I still encourage you to tune in. We want to get both sides talking in your ear um, about these issues, even when they're wrong. And especially when they're wrong, it gives me a little something on Ask Anthony, where I like to talk back to people who do get things wrong and try to correct them. That's kind of what I'm here for. If you'd like to reach out to me with an idea for a future show or an Ask Anthony subject or to ask me something, uh, it's wienerwabc at gmail.com. I think it's at repwiener on Twitter X and Anthony D. Wiener on something, threads or something like that. Um, I do appreciate how much support you've given me. This is our, as I said, the 70th episode. That's a lot of episodes. I just commemorated my 100th episode of the other show and that you can get that anywhere you download podcasts. It's uh, it's called The Middle. Uh, we had a fun episode this week um, and look forward to having um, many more and look forward to being able to reach more people. We can do that if you can rate this, if you can subscribe, if you can share it. Anything that helps you get the word out is gratefully appreciated by me and all of us here who make this show possible. So thank you very much for joining us. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged.